Uh, the church, this gathering of people, exists for the sake of others. That's what we've been exploring over the past few weeks. And the question we're asking in this series is rather simple. How? How do we exist for the sake of others? And so we've looked at place, posture, power, and we're going to look at presence. This is a place where people can come and explore faith. And they're going to be able to explore faith as we take a posture of invitation and storytelling. But we also can't depend on our own strength. We depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And so now we're going to look at presence. Uh, Leslie Newbegin uh, was one of the most prolific Christian thinkers and missionaries of the 20th century. And he began his ministry in Scotland and then moved to India. And 20 years later, he moved back home. And when he had come home, everything had changed. The new reality was a, a phrase he coined, post-Christian. It was once a baseline where everyone was just a Christian or knew something about Christianity. And after 20 years of ministry, he comes back and that is just not the truth anymore. He lives in a post-Christian environment. And so he started wrestling with this. How does the church exist for the sake of others in a post-Christian environment? And here's what Newbegin said. Live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Newbegin understood better than most that presence, our presence, matters in a post-Christian age. And so as the church exists for the sake of others, we become a presence throughout the city as we live differently. God's presence causes us to live differently. And so I want to look at three things to help us consider that point this morning. Lights, source, and navigation. Lights, source, and navigation. So if you have a Bible... Open it up to Philippians chapter 2. That was our reading this morning. If you don't own a Bible, everything will be on the screen behind me, and you can also take one of our church Bibles home with you. Uh, this is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to an ancient church in Philippi, and Paul writes this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now, much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So our first point, lights. I remember very clearly the first time my daughter Ansley saw the light, uh, the stars. We were on vacation in Salt Spring Island. She was only two, and we were good parents, so we woke her up at midnight to take her outside. And even though it was summer and still warm outside, Julia, Ansley, and I sat on the patio of this little cabin and wrapped ourselves in a blanket. And we were staying in a remote part of the island, and it was a clear night, so there was just a completely clear sky of innumerable stars. And we sat there, overwhelmed by the beauty of it, and trying to point out constellations to Ansley, and I only know one, like the Big Dipper or whatever it's called, and trying to point that out to her. And watching Ansley take in the night sky for the first time allowed me to appreciate the gift of starlight afresh. 
The stars are amazing, aren't they? Paul says the church will shine among others like stars in the sky. It doesn't mean the place. He means the people who gather and are unified under Christ will shine in the world as stars in the sky. But I live downtown. And it's easy to forget the stars because the light pollution of the city drowns them out. You know, I look up and I see skyscrapers and flickering screens and lamps through windows, but no stars. I can even walk over the Granville Bridge in the middle of the night and the ambient light of the city still drowns out the stars. No, on the average night, I live with no sense of the stars above. Anyone else? And when we're in the midst of light pollution, we can't see the stars because we're enveloped by artificial light. And over time, we get so accustomed to the artificial light of the city that we don't even think about the stars. And this is true of our presence in the city as well. Paul calls us stars, but we live in the midst of artificial light. And over time, it's easy to lose sense of what is different about our light compared to all the light we see in the city every day. You know, often, we live no differently than the average Vancouverite. Many people in our city are committed to the common good. You know, they care about the right things. They champion the important causes. They attend the right protests. They seek what is good for others. You know, they're informed and considerate and engaged in life. And often, our lives are no different than theirs. If anything, they might be more just, more moral. And so our lives don't provoke any questions, as New Begin says they should. And so, while much can be com commended about the pursuit of the common good, it's artificial light. It has a place. It's needed. But it's not the same as the light in the sky. It's not the light that Paul has in mind for us. It's a glimmer compared to the real thing. There should be something different about our presence and the source of our light. That is what Paul is saying to us. Even if we care about the same things as people in our city and support the same causes as others, our presence is not the same. So we live in one of the most post-Christian cities of all of North America. I would argue probably the most post-Christian city in all of North America. And so this means for us, we don't have the convenience of shining as lights against a dark, clear night sky. We have to figure out how do we shine as lights in the midst of light pollution with all this artificial light surrounding us. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we shine here in the light pollution? That's the challenge. How do we live as lights so that we're seen as different, so that our presence is something other than status quo? How do we live differently so that our lives do provoke questions for which the gospel is the answer. And so this brings us to our second point, the source. Paul's advice for us is, thankfully, very straightforward. He says, the church will shine among others like stars in the sky as we hold firmly to the word of life. Hold firmly to the word of life. This is another way of saying, hold firmly 
to Jesus himself. But before I talk about holding fast to Jesus, I want to talk about Moses, because that right turn makes sense about here, doesn't it? I don't know if you knew this about the prophet Moses, but Moses was into veils. Moses wore a veil. Now, that's not how you likely imagine him. You might think of the valiance of Charlton Heston, but Moses was into veils. When we read Exodus 34, here's what it says. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hands, so the Ten Commandments, he wasn't aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near to him. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord. Now, so much could be said about that. But here's what I want you to take away. The presence of God changed the presence of Moses. And it wasn't subtle. A veil was needed. And Paul picks up on this imagery. He picks up on this reality. And he writes to the church in Corinth this, when one turns to the Lord Jesus, the veil is removed. And we all, all of us, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So unlike the Israelites in the wilderness, we don't need a veil. We don't need to reduce the light of God's glory to make it more palpable. The veil is removed, and, and Paul's saying we can behold the full glory of the Lord in Christ. We can behold the Lord as Moses did, and even more, because we are beholding the beloved Son. And as we gaze upon him, Paul's point is this. You're going to be transformed degree by degree by degree. So the presence of God changed the presence of Moses, and the presence of God changes our own presence too. We could put it like this. The glory of Jesus rubs off on us. We shine, we shine to the extent that we've been with him. So the source of our light is the very presence of Jesus. Not just the ideals of Jesus, not just the nice teachings of Jesus, but his very presence by the power of his spirit. Preston made such an important point last week that I want to repeat it. How you spend your waking moments, your first waking moments, and your closing moments before you go to sleep, those vulnerable moments will shape you over time. And you need patterns and habits and practices that root you in the presence of Jesus daily. And the first places to look are what do you do right when you wake up and right, what do you do right before you fall asleep. And this is why we encourage all of you to develop a rhythm for life. You know, discover practices that keep you moving upward toward God, inward toward self, withward in community. Yes, we invented the word withward, but withward in community and outward in mission. You need practices that keep you moving in all those directions. And if you haven't created a rhythm for life or if this is new language for you, come talk to us. 
or sign up for the next retreat. We have one in May and there will likely be one before then. But we can't shine as lights if we have a loose grip on Jesus. You can't shine as a light of Christ if you have a loose grip on Jesus. Paul says, hold fast. Hold fast. Maintain your grasp. Keep a tight grip. Don't let go. You know, it takes intentional effort to hold on to Christ. But the point of any spiritual practice, whether you have a practice of prayer or meditating on scripture or fasting or gratitude or journaling or serving in the city somewhere, whatever practice it may be, the point is never a spiritual checklist. The point is never a task. The practice is a means to open you up to presence. Every practice, whatever spiritual practice we commend to you is always so that the practice might open you up to the presence of Christ. That's the goal, not getting the practice down. Because when you've been in his presence, your presence changes. So while I would commend all of you to seek after justice, to show mercy, To walk humbly, it's not enough. Because many people in our city already do these things and don't share our beliefs and aren't impressed when we join with them. It doesn't make us any different. It doesn't cause us to shine its lights if you simply pursue justice and mercy in the same way anyone else does. What makes your presence different is when the presence of Christ is with you and shines through you. So do justice. Seek mercy and walk humbly, as Micah says, with your God. So that all of these things you do are actually an expression of his character. So that he is the source of justice. He is the source of mercy. He is the source of how you're living. So you need to hold fast to him. John's gospel says that the world will know we are Christians by our love. I think that was a song too, but John got to it first. The world will know we are Christians by our love. Not by social justice efforts. Not by demonstrations of mercy. Not by the protests we attend or the causes we champion. But by our love. Not by human love, but divine love spilling out through us. Every single person in this room is made in the image of God. If you want to picture that, picture a mirror on a 45-degree angle. When God's light shines upon us, it shines through us into the world. And if you want to reflect God's justice, if you want to reflect God's mercy, if you want to reflect God's love, it's not found within your own reservoir. It's found through the source of his love, his light, his justice, his mercy shining upon you and then through you. And that's what the world needs. It needs us to participate in justice. It needs us to show mercy. It needs us to walk differently, but because our source has changed. Are you with me? But what makes our presence different, practically speaking? That's all good in theory. And there's a lot that could be said about what changes our presence when we're with Jesus. So let me just focus in on one thing Paul says here in Philippians. Look at what he wrote in verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or arguing or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. 
So you don't grumble or dispute or argue. We could translate that into modern terms by saying, you resist outrage culture. You resist outrage culture. You resist also giving into excessive freedom of a hyper-individualistic culture where your self-indulgence and your self-expression are the ultimate things. That's what Paul alludes to with a crooked and twisted generation. And when you resist these things, your presence starts to change. But what's really significant is that our passage this morning in verse 12 begins with the word, therefore. Hopefully you caught that. And that means something was said, therefore, in light of what was said. And what was just said by Paul was actually the Christ hymn. This is what scholars call it, the Christ hymn. It was possibly an early hymn or song of the church. And here's what Paul said. Although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, we have to understand that the movement of Christ is one of descent. He didn't exploit being God. He didn't use his divinity to his own advantage. But rather, he emptied himself and became like one of us. And he went further still. God not only emptied himself and condescended in such a way to be a human, but emptied himself and became a servant. That the God of the universe would become a man and not come to be served, but as Christ says, to serve. But that's not where the descent ends. God continued to descend all the way to the point of death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. In other words, the God of innumerable glory... The God who would blow our minds if we could actually see him descended to the point of dying the most shameful death imaginable in the world at that time. That is the path of descent that Jesus Christ took. The lifestyle of Jesus is not one of upward mobility. As a middle class church, you have to hear that. The lifestyle of Jesus Christ is not one of upward mobility, but rather descent into service. And when his presence changes ours, we descend into service as well. We join him on that trajectory. Life is no longer about what we can acquire or what we can gain or, or make for ourselves. It's about surrendering. It's about emptying ourselves of entitlement and, and status-seeking and, and serving so let me give you one practical example. What does this look like? It looks a lot like Bernice. It looks a lot like Bernice. I asked her permission to share this story because at our community group this past week, she had me on the brink of tears. Bernice has been separated from her husband for 20 years, but they've never filed for divorce. And recently, her ex-husband reached out to her and asked for help because he has cancer and no one to help take care of him. And Bernice decided to go to Kelowna to uproot her life temporarily here and to care for him. And she was back in town and she was at community group 
sharing about what's been going on. She's been gone for quite a few weeks at this point. She was so happy to be back in Vancouver, back with our community group. And she said, it's been hard. She said, there are times where I'm reminded without a shadow of a doubt why this man is my ex-husband. <laughs> but when he reached out and asked me to help, she said, I couldn't help but ask myself, who would Jesus help? Who would Jesus love? Who would Jesus serve? Where would Jesus go? And so Bernice prayed and descended and has given herself in service. To be clear, she hasn't re-entered the relationship or put herself in a harmful situation. But it's costly, it's dissent, it's service. She says that her ex-husband believes that aliens seeded the earth. And her great hope, her prayer, which I hope you'll join us in praying, is that as she serves and loves her husband as Christ has served and loved her, that her husband might know the goodness of God before he dies. And then Bernice said, I have to go back to Kelowna this week. Would you pray for me? Let's pray for Bernice. Lord, we thank you for Bernice's example of descent into service. Would you so fill her with your Holy Spirit and sustain her with your love that her ex-husband might see your goodness and come to know that you truly are the Lord of the universe who loves him and gave yourself even for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, this is what descent into service can look like. And it's beautiful. So we're not part of outrage culture. We're not part of the hyper-individualism of our culture. We're not on the path of upward mobility. Instead, we descend into humble service with Christ. And that's how we begin to shine in the midst of artificial light. So my last point, navigation. Stars in the ancient world, and, and even in the world today, they were a way that you navigate. The stars were fixed points that helped you get from A to B. This was very true in Paul's time. And so when Paul says that we're stars that shine in the midst of the world, he doesn't just mean we're real pretty, because God knows we're not. He doesn't just mean we're really pretty. He means we are points of reference in which people can begin to navigate their way back home into the presence of God. Do you understand that? We can help people connect with their deepest desire to go home, find peace, to find rest, and to find it in the presence of God. And God uses our light to help people find their way back home. I was never an atheist. I was always spiritual, but not religious, like most people who grew up in Cascadia. Uh, and you may not know this, but next to being a certified yoga instructor, one of my Favorite activities in my early 20s, you're now wondering if that's true, it is. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite activities was ghost hunting. Ghost hunting. And during that season of my life as a ghost hunter, I was also a musician. And at the time, I was on tour, like this short tour with another band. And I found out this band we were touring with were Christians. It blew my mind. Because before a show, they would get together and pray. And I'd never seen anyone do this in my life. I'm like, what is going on? Because they were a hardcore band. So they would pray, 
and then they'd get on stage and just scream their guts out. I, I, it just blew my paradigm of what makes sense in the world. And anyways, we're playing a home show. And I thought it would be funny to invite them ghost hunting, to mess with them because they're Christians. And to my surprise, their lead singer, Chris, said, sure, that sounds like fun. And so I took them to the Victoria Golf Club, which apparently is where the most common sightings of ghosts occur in all of North America. So if you're interested, not that I commend the activity, but if you are, there you go. So we snuck up on the property, which was illegal, which again, I don't commend, but we snuck onto the property and we walked around and it's in this really remote area and there's no light and it was a clear night and the stars are shining. And as we walk around looking for ghosts, I'm talking to Chris about my life and about my relationships and about my spirituality and my thoughts about the world. And he just kept listening and asking questions and seemed genuinely interested. And the way he listened, though, the way he asked questions, the way he was willing to be with me on my terms, even if those terms were ghost hunting, made me ask questions. Why are you so different? And that night, Chris told me about Jesus. And I thought, huh, I wasn't saved, but seeds were planted. And I thought, maybe I should learn more about this Jesus. See, Chris's presence was different because he was holding fast to Jesus. Jesus, who the Gospel of John describes as the true light that gives light to everyone. Jesus, who says of himself, I am the true light of the world. When we hold fast to his light, he shines through us. And our presence changes for the sake of others. But I know you. And I know that many of you, the challenge to hold fast immediately makes you feel tired. But here's the thing. As we attempt to hold fast to Jesus, we discover that he holds tight and ever tighter to us. The painting Forgiven by Thomas Blackshear captures this beautifully. The man in this painting has nothing left. He's spent he can't even keep himself standing up. But Jesus holds fast to him. The hands of Christ, look how strong they are. You know, they're strong enough to keep this man up. They're strong enough for the nails of crucifixion that he was ready to drive into Christ. They're strong enough for the sins of humanity. And when we're in a place spiritually or personally like this man, a place of weakness or exhaustion or burnout. We shine as lights when we allow others to see how Christ holds on to us in our deepest places of vulnerability. Because the word of life made his descent into service for you. He died for you to save you to heal you, to bring you into the presence of God, to help you become whole. And Jesus did everything that was necessary. He said, it's finished. There's nothing you need to add. There's nothing you need to accomplish. And Jesus holds fast to you. And so you can hold fast to him. And even when you can't, he will not let you go. And he will shine through you all the same.